1: The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. I'm Marcello Rolando, your host, and my guest today... Dan Everly, the director and writer of Soul proprietor. Dan, how are you today? and welcome to the Reasonable right, Voices. Yeah, Dan uh, went to New York City back in 2001, and I've got to ask you, Dan, before or after 9/11? Uh,
0: actually it came right after
1: 911. Oh wow, you well either way, it's, it's, it must have been a well, uh, he did not visit beforehand because he felt that if he did, uh, he wouldn't go. So he packed up everything, and he moved. And I'm going to tell my quick story, and then I'll promise I'll let Dan talk. You know, I'd heard for years, go to New York, go to New York. So uh, I, um, one day, Dan, I just packed up w- one suitcase. I didn't have a job, didn't have a place to stay. I got a one-way ticket to New York Penn Station. And I did have friends in town that said, anytime you're in town, come stay And it turned out um, they wanted to leave town and needed uh, someone to watch the apartment for a given amount of time. I got my first temp job. You take it from there, Dan. How did yours go?
0: Uh, Actually, strikingly similar to your own. (laughs) Um, I I came to New York. I was a jazz musician at the time. Mm. I actually uh, got kind of my start in, in show business, uh, playing playing jazz guitar.
2: Mm. Essentially, uh, you know, I was studying
0: in Texas at University of North Texas, which mm. is actually a, a world-renowned uh, jazz school. know yes. so it's a state school, uh, and it's in Texas. Uh, it's quite uh, the <laughs> jazz hub. And I, I was down there for for a good long time and uh, you know it's a it's a very easy life in texas and it's a lot of fun uh living in a college town with uh all of your uh your young colleagues mm-hmm. and, uh at some point uh you know every young jazz musician has to come to new york and give it a give it a shot yes um, and so it was time to do that so i came out um, by the time that I actually came to New York, I was actually uh, t- transitioning into something different than just being a, a jazz player. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always written uh, quite a bit, studied uh, some acting and uh, theater, and this was actually right at the beginning of um, kind of the, um, the public radio
2: kind of audio documentary craze that gotcha. started with This American Life. Yes. Yes. Um, I came
0: up on crime novels and film noir and that sort of thing. So that was always sort of my aesthetic, even musically. It was Mm -hmm. kind of of my aesthetic. Um, And so I've always favor these sort of dark
2: stories, and I didn't necessarily grow up uh, in, a, in a dark environment or anything, <laughs> and I'm not exactly a, a documentarian myself,
0: but um, I really wanted to explore this, um, you know, this sort of live radio experience that I found so so moving, starting with This American Life, but there were a lot of offshoots that were around at the time uh, as, I was, as, as I was sort of picking up speed, and so I started uh, writing uh, these narrative monologues mm-hmm. um, and scoring them and mm. so my, my band would uh, would perform the score and I would tell the story and it was actually uh, it was really cool and it was very different than just uh, you know playing modern jazz which is gotcha. also a you know huge huge love of mine uh, but I was kind of doing this other thing as well mm-hmm. and it was actually quite an all-consuming thing um, these, these spoken word pieces and the scoring and everything. was actually quite a consuming project. Um, so it would be like a set of music and then a set of this uh, sort of uh,
2: performance, uh, not exactly performance art because it wasn't particularly esoteric, but you get the mm-hmm. picture. I got uh, I had done a few of these pieces um, in
0: Texas, and they always went over so much better than just playing music, Mm -hmm. you know, people Mm -hmm. found it really uh, accessible, and it actually provided an interesting access point for the music. It gave this music that most people don't understand or particularly appreciate a kind of narrative context. And... That is a thing that I am, uh, th- that concept, that general concept is something that I'm really into. We can get into that in a little bit. But uh, again, I, even though my first love was was being a, this jazz player, I, I do have a great inherent love of storytelling, and mm-hmm. it's such a so ingrained in me, um, I really wanted to keep doing it, but it was such, uh, the the disciplines are so disparate and require um, a lot of, you know, a lot of attention and a lot of effort that are somewhat mutually exclusive, so when I was producing these pieces, these performance pieces, I really wasn't playing a lot, and... Uh, and so I would feel like I was neglecting this thing that I'm supposed to be doing. So then I would, you know, sort of swing hard the other way. And when I came to New York, I decided I would put that down and just focus on playing music and writing music. And so for the first year, uh, that's really what I did. Um, but, you know, music had evolved, jazz music, modern jazz evolved into a thing that I didn't totally identify
2: with, mm-hmm.
0: uh, just a different... Different kind of harmonic and melodic aesthetic that just didn't really speak to me, and I was kind of stuck
2: in in yesterday's aesthetic Mm -hmm. to some extent. (laughs) And I still I still loved writing, um,
0: and I still loved music, but uh, the urge to be this jazz musician uh, was, was somewhat dampened. And then the experience of coming to New York is such a You know, it's such a shocking thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. for a few people, it's it's quite easy, and and they kind of slide right into it. Uh, For me, uh, you know, I I was coming out, I think, in my late 20s or early 30s,
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: and I really, I don't know, I think that I had... a certain threshold of adulthood. Uh-huh. I certainly had a lot of growing up to do, but uh, th- there is a certain rigidness that you get, uh, you know, as you grow older,
2: <laughs> and it's harder <laughs> to make these kinds of transitions. I got gotcha. you. Uh, yeah, so um, so really, a lot of my
0: colleagues that had come to New York were really excited about me doing this, the sort of music and uh, a kind of theatrical performance. But I really wasn't feeling it. I, I didn't feel like it was uh, like I was fully focused on anything, and it was just such an exhausting, um, you know, an exhausting undertaking to produce yes. these pieces that um, eventually I kind of didn't. Really know what to do with myself. Uh, I wasn't really terribly excited about playing music anymore. I wasn't uh, really w-
2: feeling like uh, I was. I was getting anywhere It's a terrible mm-hmm. place to be when you come into a big scary place like New York. And of course, I'm I'm for the first time in years and years uh, working day jobs. So mm. I'm taking on these temp jobs, kind of yes. like what you described. I know
0: uh, sitting in. a yeah, sitting in offices, uh, you know, having
2: no particular skills except for being a, you know, somewhat presentable human being can <laughs> answer a phone. And I started writing
0: again, um, just because there was nothing, literally nothing else to do. So um, I actually wrote three novel manuscripts within my first year of being in New York. Wow. Um, And I didn't really expect that
1: it would be as easy as it was, and that's not to say that they were good. Uh, It's actually quite quite difficult to write a good novel. Yes, the act of actually creating, uh, you
0: know, the the basis for a novel was actually came quite quite easy easy to me, and um, it's not uh, particularly great quality writing. It was
1: um, kind of empowering to see how prolific I could be. Yes, good. Um, but at,
0: at the same time, I did feel like, even though um, of
1: the three that I wrote, really only one was any good. Um, That's not a bad ratio. I feel like <laughs> not <that. Yeah. laughs> um I didn't feel
0: that uh, that they that this was me. That this was really the thing for me. Uh-huh. Uh, strangely, you would think after doing something like that that there would be nothing there would be no question Mm
2: -hmm. but
0: I still didn't feel like I was I was quite there um somebody uh, my my long time um teacher and uh, mentor Paul Vasquez who is now unfortunately now departed uh, a few years back mm.
2: um,
0: he was one of these figures we you know every actor every writer everyone who works in the arts has at least one, one yes. person out there hopefully more than one yes. uh, that really is sort of with you throughout your whole experience and he Paul was that guy for me and uh, you know an amazing renaissance man a, a fantastic musician an amazing actor a, a fabulous writer and just a Amazing intellectual curiosity
2: mm, mm-hmm. um, about about everything
0: in all disciplines, and really just kind of personified that you know that artist mentality that that we just don't hear enough about
2: anymore. And uh, he read uh, he read everything I ever wrote, wow. uh, but particularly this, um, this manuscript I wrote for a novel
0: called The Local, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the one that was that was worth a damn. Uh-huh. And I remember. And saying, uh, you know, this would be a good film. Yeah. That's really what it should be. This should not be a book. Um, and, which perhaps was his way of saying, don't be a writer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but be a filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he encouraged me to, to, to look at, at filmmaking, sure. and I, you know, uh, come from a, a family of, uh, you know,
2: very hard-working, sort of red-blooded uh, Americans, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, like, like a lot of uh, sort of salt of the earth types um, mm-hmm. never really, uh, they've always been very supportive of me, my parents, but they um, they were never big on taking a lot of risk and that's just good parenting probably yes. uh, the idea of, be- of becoming some kind of filmmaker sounded insane to them uh. <laughs> <laughs> and filmmaking you you know, filmmaking had changed a lot,
0: you know, coming from their generation, you know, it would cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to make even the worst possible movie. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this was right around the time that the digital revolution was really changing Mm -hmm. the game in terms of of filmmaking. And I've always had kind of an aptitude for technology. And, you know, I actually learned uh, in my... uh, in my high school. We went to a uh, went to a performing arts high school that had pretty uh, pretty extensive magnet program. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's essentially it's uh, hiring professionals in a given discipline to come yes. and work
1: in the school and teach their trade to the students. And these are not your standard high school teachers. These are you know actual people uh, are doing it. So Yes. Th- yeah, and this is where I, I actually met
0: Paul Vasquez, who was uh, you know was teaching theater and acting. Um, I also met uh, an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker named Steve Bognar, mm-hmm. who taught me the uh, rudiments of filmmaking, uh, film production. Uh, and back then, it was just a, a class that I was in that I sort of laughed my way through and didn't <laughs> ever take seriously. <laughs> because. I, I didn't care. You know, I was a musician. Mm-hmm. I was already playing professionally when I was in high school and it felt like I, you know, this was just a fun thing to do on the side. Um, even then, when I was making these these little student films, um, you know, learning editing and that sort of thing, um, it was, you know, I always had a flair for it, but mm-hmm. I, it was a joke to me. It was yeah. just something that I uh, didn't didn't care that much about, but uh, it was a thing that I could definitely do, and it's funny when you are a young Teenager learning
2: something, um, you are like a—you really are like a sponge. Yes. And you are—it's amazing the the things that you take in without even wanting to know them. They just—they're <laughs> uh, inside of you forever. So yes. When I decided. To, to look into filmmaking, it was a it
0: was actually a fairly easy transition to make because I already knew a lot about how to make films, how films were constructed, um, and I had been writing since I was a little kid. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, screenwriting was actually, especially after writing,
1: uh, attempting to write a few novels. Yes. Screenwriting seemed uh, actually quite easy
0: mm-hmm. um, by comparison, and uh, and I just. Started, uh, sort of dove in with, with with both feet, and it was uh, actually uh, really, really rewarding and unexpectedly uh, uh,
1: successful. Did you did the the novel that was the good one, uh, the local? You say it was entitled. T- uh, did it feed sole okay. proprietor? Uh, it did, as a matter of fact. Uh,
0: so you know, the local actually I made into a film. Um, it came out in two thousand eight, uh-huh. and. The, the film version was certainly the most successful film that I have made to date. Mm. Um, it's uh, essentially the uh, the story of a, it's kind of a Ronin samurai
2: uh-huh.
0: type theme. Um, and it is a, it is very steeped in a kind of almost graphic novel style mm. uh, genre. Uh, it's about a, um, sort of a former gangster informer who is in a self-imposed purgatory living as a not quite homeless man in New York Mm -hmm. and is working as a drug courier for $30 a day and again Mm -hmm. this is sort of his version of hell Mm -hmm. uh, having uh, come from the high society of crime and now is subjecting himself to the uh, the lowest possible uh, position and obviously you know you know, it's all
2: about being a guy who is uh, new in town and being treated like yes. crap. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's also a, kind of a self-punishing uh, uh, theme for a life of uh, rottenness. Mm. So, you know, he's trying to kind of make
0: amends to, you know, to the world and to God and uh, by, by punishing himself and, you know, and, and through this experience of, of uh, kind of being at the bottom rung of things, uh, he has this very rigid sense of order and a kind of a, a sense of justice. And he is uh, kind of too smart for his
2: own good yeah. and too aware for his own good and ends up uh, stumbling into a
0: redemptive scenario where he is able to do something nice for somebody else and hopefully uh, make up for, for some of his, his bad things in life. So it was, uh, it was a kind of wall-to-wall action movie um tons of of uh of kind of splashy fighting and that sort of thing and mm-hmm. uh very gritty, um, and it, you know it, it. It was a very low budget movie, but uh, it had a, a kind of frantic energy to it mm-hmm. that was really something special. And it was kind of the first time that I totally embraced the limitations of low budget filmmaking to try to kind of create a kind of almost like a do you think of it as like a polished rustic yes. uh, piece, yes. you know, f- uh, from the uh, from the, the garbage <laughs> from which we <laughs> assembled it. And um, it was uh, it was an Amazing experience to make on the film, and we sold it to a very um, kind of low-end distributor that we were working with at the time. This mm-hmm. was right around the time the DVDs were starting to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, the streaming thing hadn't really
2: yes. taken off yet, mm-hmm. and it was really
0: uh, almost overnight. About a month after release, we we're suddenly picked up by the uh, by the torrents, the uh, the piracy web uh, yes. out there. Um, and this film had caught on in a big way and i uh i somehow um we had shot from
2: around the, the, the forty thousand uh, right between Pulp fiction and spider-man 4 oh, wow. and getting all of these messages through social
0: media from people all over the world telling me how much they loved this movie and how much it moved them and you know, and, and to, to varying degrees of broken English. And uh, it was uh, just amazing, you know, this this movie that is a completely... Uh, I mean, if you watch it, you get
2: the, the basic gist of the plot, but there's a lot of very unintelligible language in the movie. Hmm. There's a lot of... Um, uh, you know a lot of the
0: narrative doesn't uh doesn't totally uh land right in your face it takes some some doing to try to make sense of what's happening but there is this very basic story of a guy trying to um kind of transcend his environs in this uh really rough uh you know violent world that he's he's put himself in mm-hmm. and it I really, it really resonated with a lot of people, and I actually heard about it for years, wow. many years after it was it was released. And then, you know, obviously we didn't sell most of the territories that it did the best in. My wife, who had a, <laughs> she's a designer, she's a creative director, and she had a. Um, freelancer in Singapore, and uh, hmm. she had helped on some of the marketing materials after the movie was, was, or just around the time the movie was released, she was uh, having a, a, just a little chat with her, with her freelancer, and uh, they were talking about the film, and I remember she, she asked, oh
2: yeah, you? Uh, I think I've heard of this movie, and I like, uh-huh. went
0: uh-huh. back into her library and said, yes, my husband bought this for me, there it you was go. Just
2: so random that, the, that all these people had,
0: knew about this movie and seen it. Um, just one one quick anecdote about it is that um, yeah, the movie came out. It was right around the time that Netflix was really jumping off, mm. and that, back mm-hmm. when Netflix took every possible movie, yes.
2: and um,
0: and we were on Netflix for
2: years with that. It was seen just hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of times,
0: and. I met uh Nicholas winding resson who's a, a director.
2: Uh he directed the movie Drive and uh oh, most recently the Neon Demon. He's a really wonderful, uh wonderful filmmaker.
0: I met him at a at a Q and A in, in Brooklyn when he was promoting the film that came out after Drive, uh, Only God Forgives. And I, I met him and I uh you know, I told him what a fan I was and I actually brought him uh copies of all my films. Wow. Uh, and, you know, we were, we were just chatting for a minute. He was thumbing through them, and he, he knew the local. He knew it. He wow.
2: Like, <laughs> it, was like, it was such a um, gratifying experience. Sure. That, that, you know, just how much reach this film had gotten.
0: So even though we didn't really make any money off of the movie, mm-hmm. because most of its distribution was stolen or licensed at really low rates, it was still a, a huge success in terms yes. of uh, just, you know, being
1: you know, having your work recognized by so many different people. Yes, and and discovering for yourself, hey, I can do this, (laughs) you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I'm going to break it only because we need to go to break, and when we come back, we will continue our conversation. This is terrific with Dan Everly, the writer and director of Soul Proprietor, and we will talk about Soul Proprietor In our next segment, I promise, it's a sexy, mysterious film. i got to ask him all about that, but we'll be right back. Stay with us. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. One of the many joys of going to film festivals is the treasure hunt, You wander into a screening knowing that polish may be lacking, but hoping to be a part of something special. No budget festival films are a world all their own. Unknown actors with scant experience, imperfect sound, little sheen of perfection. It takes big money for truly professional production, but money comes later and an artist must produce. Thankfully, the heart and soul of a nascent filmmaker balances imperfection with its own unique reward. An example... Try getting out. Two buddies work through hard times, neither making much of themselves. One works for a small-time mobster while the other fails a child support and is losing his house to the bank. One is in love with the mobster's girl who is used to the finer things in life. The other is at the end of his rope. The answer, of course, rob the mobster. Getting Out, written, directed, and produced by Nick Felice, is one of those festival films born of passion. The plot delivers, and lead Kevin Hartzman here earns a larger frame. It will be fun to watch what careers are launched by this little film. And we knew them when. Getting out. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Welcome back to The Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. Again, my guest today is filmmaker Dan Eberly, who is the writer-director of Soul Proprietor. It's a sexy, mysterious, neo-noir. I always want to say, does that mean it's gray? Uh, Soul Proprietor. It combines a dreamlike narrative. I've only seen the trailer, but it's fast. It's it's, uh, heart-pounding. It's gritty. It's real. It explores themes of subjugation which was a moment that was kind of weird there for me. Uh, Dan, you have to tell us about that. Loyalty and the transcendence of love and sacrifice in a world of cruel nihilism. And it equals, I guess I guess the running um, characters are a, a cop on the edge, a woman with a plan, and the, uh, the bagman's bag. Is that fair or am I oversimplifying, Dan? <laughs> you jump in any uh, no, that's uh, that, that's those are, those are most of the components okay.
2: uh,
0: to be sure so you know it's uh, it's a very uh, fancy way of, uh, kind of kind of describing the movie I mean it, it, the film is a uh, pretty uh, meat and potatoes uh, crime story mm-hmm. it's essentially about a, a man a former CIA contractor so yes. not really uh, any kind of secret agent more yes. like a uh, uh, of a dirty deeds man
2: uh, who uh, is hired by the CIA to do bad things when yes. they need deniability. Um, so he's
0: a guy, who's a, really just a thug, um, who's good at languages, um, and he feels <laughs> like he's ready to, to move on in life. He has faked his own death, and he has come to New York uh, to finalize the purchase of his new identity. Uh-huh. So um, p- part of the... Program is that he, you know, is in touch with this unnamed syndicate. Uh, he has a handler who is uh, facilitating all of this, and he is told to wait inside of a safe house in Chinatown um, until they decide that his credentials are ready and and, and all the rest. So when he lands, um, the first thing they do is uh, they don't take his money and they tell him that they want. Um, you know, they want him to, to do a job for them uh, mm-hmm. as payment, which is exactly what he did not want. Yes. Um, so the thing is, is that he doesn't know what the job is, nor do they. Um, and he is really just in an icebox. He's uh, he's sitting in this safe house with nothing to do for an indeterminate amount of time. Um, so it's a really, uh, you know, he's, he's really at their mercy and since he's already legally dead, there's really nothing he can do unless he'd like to just walk away from the
1: whole thing and then he's on his own. And then he meets um, so a, uh, he meets a sex worker. He does. Uh, so he's kind of a nefarious character unto himself. Uh, so
2: his idea of, uh, of, uh, you know, making new friends is you yeah. go on the internet and hire a prostitute. <laughs> um,
0: so that's uh, that's what he does uh, and then he he meets this woman on a website uh, named Sophie and she's a french
2: expatriate um, and she works for herself so she's not uh, working oh. for anyone else and independent She's she's, a, she's independent
0: uh, self self-made woman and uh, the two of them kind of have um You know, they they have a connection. First Mm -hmm. of all, he speaks fluent French, so uh, that's that's something that you didn't expect Mm -hmm. uh, right off the bat. And so that's kind of their uh, initial access point. And then from there, they eventually kind of warm up to each other. He's, uh, you know, necessarily... Defensive and kind of closed individual. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's not really in a hurry to make friends with anyone. Um, And Sophie, played by Alexandra Helquist, she is really, uh, she's very uh, persistent. And, you know, Sophie does not really, um, she doesn't have a bad time. You know, she Uh she is not a dark individual. Um, And so when she's um, interacting with him, you know, she's really not. Um, not letting his his uh, morbidity get in
2: the way of her good time, exactly. which is kind of an
0: interesting thing. <laughs> um, so anyway, but they both share, um, you know, this ethos of self-reliance and, and an appreciation of personal freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, even though they don't really reveal a lot about each other in detail um they know that they they understand one another and you know despite um all of his efforts to push her away
2: uh he keeps coming back <laughs> he keeps <hiring laughs> her, and uh you know and she kind of breaks him down after a while uh-huh. and just as this romance is really taking root um
0: she ends up involving him in uh, in a bit of a uh, of a mess that mm-hmm. she is um that she's embroiled in, nice. and uh, he uh, thinks that he is uh, helping her out when actually uh, there
2: is something else afoot. Gotcha.
0: I'll, I'll leave it there. So it's a it's a little bit of a of a film noir in the in the sense that uh, you've got sort of these uh, these dark characters that have uh, ulterior motives, and it really kind of centers around this this guy who's. Uh, uh, the CIA guy who's named Crowley or goes by Crowley. Uh-huh. Um, and he is, he's really, you know, kind of trying to, to be different, and he just finds himself being the same for new yeah. reasons. So, they they pull me um,
1: back in. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly.
1: Well, it, you know, again, I, I've only seen the trailer, but what I've seen is, uh, as you say, I don't think it's it's not dark, but the characters are at least the male character. Is that you, by the way? uh
0: yes that's me uh i am the, uh, the, the man of
2: violence yeah, yes yes um, so you know, um, it's yeah. I mean, these
1: are dark themes. These uh-huh. are themes of, of violence and, uh, yes. and themes of uh, of deceit. But um, ultimately,
2: uh, all of that is a is a container for yes. uh, for other things. You know, uh, because
0: everyone deals with uh, you know with with exigent circumstances in their in their lives. Everyone feels like they are under the thumb of some someone. Or something mm-hmm. else that is holding them back in life, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I think one of the reasons why these stories have such currency, uh, you know, in our entertainment landscape is because uh, not necessarily for the sake of escapism, but it really I think has a way of making audiences feel like they are understood mm-hmm. by seeing a thing that, in some in some way, you know, resembles their uh, you know their their life vicissitudes, and you know for, for me, uh, the, the sort of the noir, uh, um, kind of language, um, is really, the, is really just my, uh, it's just my, my language, you mm-hmm. know, I, I really understand these kinds of archetypes and these kinds of stories. And I just feel most comfortable, uh, working in, in, in this arena, um, you know, a lot of People will ask filmmakers like, you know, who who make the same types of films or films that are in a in a particular genre. You know, why don't you do something like this? Or
2: do you have dreams of breaking out and doing other things? And you know, for me, uh, I mean, it's perfectly admirable,
0: um, you know, to, to be a chameleon or to to make you know vastly different types of films. But mm-hmm. um, you know, in my in my view, I feel like there's. You know, to be very reductive about it, I kind of think there are two types of artists. Uh, when it comes to people who, who make things, mm-hmm. uh, there's the artist that is a uh, you know is a, a chameleon, he is a kind of uh, you know who who finds uh, you know great uh, great reward in doing vastly different things and experiencing mm-hmm. uh creating different different experiences and really mastering things in that way and then there are the people that really kind of decide what their aesthetic is and just refine it over and over again yes. and that is the evolution uh, for me i kind of feel like i'm, I'm more the latter and uh, you know this is uh just just the, the world in which i have chosen to uh
1: to reside yes but but again, judging from the uh, trailer, it you do bring to it surprises to put, to put it mildly, it twists and turns, and fascinating uh, characters who are by no means cardboards or or uh, single. Well, they may be single-minded and sometimes, but I mean, but they're not they're not single celled. If that makes sense, they are human beings as opposed to characters. Is that? I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> Well, so, oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh,
0: that, that's certainly what I'm what I'm going for. You, you know, part of uh, you know what I do is really see how much I can say with the, with the writing and the and the you know the presentation uh, without saying a lot. So, yes. I mean, uh, you know, the the film Soul Proprietor, is really uh, a bit of a of an exercise in in, um, in elliptical filmmaking
2: mm-hmm. um, in the sense that the you know, the, the
0: vast details of the story Are left in the ellipses mm-hmm. You don't um, have it all Spelled out for you in black and white that's
2: right.
0: um, I don't necessarily have a problem With that kind of storytelling That is very explicit um, But I do feel like, uh, for me personally and, and I make movies that I would like to watch mm-hmm. um, that's, that's the best way I know How to, to proceed um, You know, for me, I, I really want Something that, that has a lot of room For interpretation mm-hmm. The characters, the, you know, certainly the actors Playing the characters know what's going on. They know what the story is. They know what their stories are. But uh, in the context of a 90-minute film, it is not. um, You know, it's not a thousand-page novel. And so you really have to give, in my view, anyway. I I think you have to give the audience as much credit as you can to, if not figure out what's what the story is, um, to kind of project their own. Uh, perception mm-hmm. onto these details as opposed to uh, just having them all spoon-fed. Exactly. I find that it's a much more uh, engaging experience for me as an audience member, and, you know, as a filmmaker, it's actually really, uh, a really fascinating experience to hear what other people Walk
1: away with yes. from these films because because they are all not necessarily vague
2: but um, you know uh, not not all the, the blanks have been filled in exactly uh, maybe that's part of part of that
0: is sort of the jazz musician in me um, you know kind of, kind of obscuring um, what I consider to be the obvious or uh, mm-hmm. understood elements mm-hmm. um, and so you know hearing other people's interpretation of these stories and these characters is really uh, you know, it's it's a it's a great thing because there's no wrong answer and it's mm-hmm. very inspiring to me and it, and it shows, um, you know, uh, that the, the audience is really actively engaged
1: yes. in what they're seeing. Yes, and, and wanting to pay attention. We're talking about Soul Proprietor with uh, the director-writer Dan Eberly and uh, tell us more, by the way, its release date, theatrical release date is Friday, August 12th of this year in Los Angeles and we'll, uh, sole proprietor will also be available digitally on Amazon, iTunes, Voodoo, and Google Play the same day and date. That's Friday, August 12th. So look for that. Tell us, Dan, a bit about um, your cast. We've got two Alexandras and Nick uh, Bixby um, and Chris, Chris Graham. That's right. So Andrew Hellquist I mentioned her earlier, earlier. Yeah. she plays the part of Sophie she's a wonderful actor that is actually
0: new to me we uh, met for the first time uh, she came in as a cold audition for the
2: mm. film and uh,
0: she had a, kind of an interesting story she had her own take on the character that uh-huh. ended up necessitating an entire script rewrite <laughs> um, for her for, for her part yeah um, and she is a, a, a fantastic uh collaborator and an amazing performer unto herself. She is uh one of the uh, aforementioned sole proprietors in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I play uh Crowley, uh, who is um the the man with no identity, yes. who is uh, the story sort of centers around, and then um, we have Nick Vixby, who uh, I actually collaborated with on my first feature, one of my first features um, called Jail City. Um, so we were both quite young uh, then, and we're uh, glad that <laughs> that film was never released. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, just a, a really uh, visceral. Uh, kind of actor that really embodies the character. He plays a character named Greer who is uh, this uh, corrupt policeman mm-hmm. who is uh, really kind of let go of life in a way. He uh, to, to say he has a death wish is, is really too generous. Mm-hmm. He's uh, kind of one of these people who's in this kind of pathological state where he seems to be driving the bus off of the cliff in every possible mm-hmm. uh, scenario. Um, so, this very self destructive man, uh, t- uh, terrible gambling debts, uh, the mob is, is after him uh, for this money, and he, rather than deal with the problem, uh, he is uh, basically exacerbating the situation mm. uh, using his, uh, his police resources. He has found out that a cartel bagman has died in
2: town, yes. he uh, is the person working the case, and he decides that this bagman. Um, must have had a bag. He <laughs> yes. uh, uses police intelligence to triangulate
0: said money to a uh, kind of a low end. Um a whorehouse in Brooklyn mm-hmm. uh, and he' was using his detective skills figures out that um, that's where uh, the, the bagman died and that these men probably have the money uh, but he doesn't want to sort of send in the cavalry because mm-hmm. then he won't be able to get his hands on it
2: yes. so instead he uses a, an informant an underage informant
0: a young Romanian uh, orphan uh, who's the played by Alexandra killroo and mm-hmm. um, who is not an orphan, by the way, but his a lady.
2: Um,
0: and she, uh, she plays a character named Amanda, who is, uh, the informant that, uh, Greer basically installs in the house. Uh, he has her kind of warm up to Misha, who is, uh, played by Chris Graham. Um, and, uh, he is the, the proprietor of the, of the, the house of ill repute. And in mm-hmm. fact, the person in possession of this bag man's money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so it's a it's a, it's a a criminal conspiracy, obviously. Yes. Uh, and there is a, there is a tertiary connection, or not so tertiary connection, between Amanda Greer, this dead bag man, and Sophie. And,
1: it's uh, it, it's just tremendous. Is dragged into it, this whole web. I, I was just going to say, it's a web of plots that are constantly crisscrossing from what I can see. And, and as I said, judging from the trailer, it's fast-paced. It's heart pumping, and you want to be on the edge of your seat, at least mentally, trying to keep up with it and know what's going on, figure out what's going on, or deciding what's going on. Uh, you know. But anyway, we're going to have to go soon, but I want to make certain that we um, we get all the kind of contact information for Soul Proprietor, uh, written and directed by Dan Everly. So Dan, how do we, I've already said it's theatrically released on Friday, August 12th, 2016 in Los Angeles, and then it becomes digitally as well uh, available. What are some of the ways we can find out about it beforehand? Facebook, Twitter, website, whatever you care to share with us? Sure.
0: You can, you can always go to our website at insurgentspictures.com. That's actually also has information on all of our previous films as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little news channel on that page where you can get all the latest info. If you would like more dynamic and fun updates and would like to engage with us, the filmmakers, uh, you can find us both on Facebook and Twitter. Um, uh, on Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com slash movie. And then on Twitter, you can find us uh, by searching the hashtag soul, soul proprietor.
2: There you so uh, feel free to get in touch with us uh, there. And then, of course, uh, lots of the cast
0: and crew have our respective Facebook and Twitter pages as well. So okay. please don't be shy.
1: And we should mention Insurgent Pictures producers. Um, uh, uh, can we run through the names at least so we have said them? Sole
0: proprietor, uh, produced
1: uh, yes. by my wife Danielle Primasieri
0: and myself Dan Everly, as well as Ashley Sprinkle, who is our uh, on producer, and Tara Anderson, who's actually worked with me on several films. And
1: um, Omar Jackson. Oh, yes, Omar Jackson uh, always oh, always with me.
0: And um, we had a, a few uh, people who were also uh, helped out uh, associate producing, including John Berman, uh, who is, uh, was a site director as well and uh, worked with me on Prayer to the Eventual God, as well as uh, Jonathan
1: Jacobson, who uh, right. is actually getting ready to make his first feature, which right. is featuring myself. Oh, well, excellent. Uh, having seen the trailer, you are very much. Comfortable in front of and behind the camera, yes? And right. Uh,
2: yeah,
1: I do it all. Excellent. I, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Dan. Dan Everly, the producer, uh, a writer, and director of Soul Proprietor, that will be theatrically released on Friday, August 12th this year in Los Angeles. And look for it also digitally on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, and Google Play the same day. Dan, anything uh, you want to take us out on after all that? your beginning in New York and where you are now? Uh, give us that high point for us as you go.
0: Oh, yes. It, it is uh, just... A, really appreciate you having us on this whole... Uh, this is the fun part of the filmmaking
2: experience,
0: <laughs> yes. and going around and meeting people like yourself and telling them about the movie and... and getting the word out. Um, So I would just uh, encourage any of you young filmmakers out there, uh, actors, musicians, people who are struggling to, you know, uh, be heard in this uh, incredibly crowded landscape, uh, Mm. don't give up, you know, really refine what it is that you do and, uh, and your audience will find you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan Everly, for being on the show. We really appreciate hearing all that you've told us about this, your life experience as well as experience of making movies and living in New York City thanks again all the best to you and your team bye now stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from the reasonable voice and now another film rental discovery welcome to the Andy film minute It's hard to say why success happens in the music industry, but there is a town located where no one would ever expect that has produced exceptional amounts of extraordinary music. Music by the likes of Aretha Franklin, Jimmy Cliff, Etta James, The Rolling Stones, Bono, and a long list of other music legends. Why here? Some say the magic that sourced these hits comes from the mystical energy emanating from a river that flows nearby. It has been known from the time of the Native Americans as the Singing River. So maybe they are right. Others claim the music's stunning colorblind successes, coming in a time when racism plotted the land, are irrevocably tied to the history of the famed studios in Muscle Shoals and the legendary producer Rick Hall. It was Hall's leadership, forged by personal tragedy, a fiery temper, and a driving ambition that wrestled these elements into music that defined a generation. The documentary Muscle Shoals is an extraordinary walk through American music history, presented with just the right mix of local beauty, historical remembrance, and the awe of some of our greatest performers who made their own pilgrimages to this out-of-the-way Alabama backwater town and recorded their greatest hits. Muscle Shoals, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the reasonable voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Oh, my God, Trump is my voice. I never thought America would be put through anything worse than the supremely delivered Bush-Cheney cast of characters, supported behind the scenes by a too-big-to-fail deconstruction production crew, ripping across borders, ripping out roots of international stability. This combo transformed nations into line items. I never thought we'd suffer memory loss of this radical redistribution of global economics by watching too much news. But if those in the land of the free outside the quicken loans arena permit the g o p lynch-pen to chapter eleven to blind us to our potential to actually be thinking home of the brave seekers of truth and justice for all i thought wrong I've often contended it's not the regular everyday down-to-earth Republican. It's the not-so-grand-old-boy leadership of the new low GOP redefining itself with sacrificing one's wife on national television in a convention speech embarrassingly plagiarized hissing through a self-serving cruise, passing a pence cliché stone, then sinking like a rock of arrogance, worse than Tom DeLay, looking hungover and sounding doped up, Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort proved me wrong. Maybe it's not just the carnival barker, but those willingly answering the call to be taken for a ride. Before gender inequality, trickle-down voodoo, fathering political extremes and economic imbalance. Before emails, social media, neck pain from device addiction. Before drones, Iraq, Afghanistan, Kent State, Vietnam. Blue versus black, black versus white, north versus south. Fear, greed, and pride connected us to the angry, hateful darkness to which Donald Trump wishes to take America. It's neither new nor visible, but it is as defining as the equator and Greenwich meridian. It is the lineage from cane to gun violence. The line snake oil salesmen ooze to dupe buyers into thinking greatness is determined by job title, bank balance, skin color, or religion. It is the one common podium from which despots soothe the savage breast of the common people. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And like Punctious Pilate, Mussolini, and friends, Joe McCarthy, and brothers Dulles and Koch, to Osama bin Laden, Bashar al-Assad, Putin, and Erdogan, many enter through it. If Trump is the American voice, this is our heritage. American politics have always been down and dirty, and both Secretary Hillary Clinton and I could shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters, Donald Trump, have given all Americans an electoral process that's possibly worse than the Jim Crow era. Trump, however, surpassing any email scandals, reflects our national Dorian Gray potential, creating hysteria, wailing and grateful chorus. Willingly genuflecting to those who think us expendable, Republicans danced in Cleveland to the refrain of me, 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 us first, like bullies assuming they're always entitled to the front of the line. Believing it's only Charles and David Koch using ultra-patriotic sounding names and pretend charities to hide political financial clout while profiting from tax exemptions is forgetting Trump is their creation. Worshiping the narcissistic is prelude to bequeathing millennials just enough pieces of silver to guarantee their repeat business and votes against themselves. If we're not extremely disappointed with both presidential candidates, we're not paying enough attention. However, now's not the time to shut down but to become acutely aware that a Trumped America is a national suicide. What GOP secret partners are doing to America is the last call. Vote to stop Trump. Gerrymandering our political system with red mapping. Citizens United. Sean Noble. Stephen A. Schwartzman. Americans for job security. Ethanol producer Bruce Russiter. U.S. Chamber of Commerce. J.W. Childs. Ken Griffin of Citadel. Grover Norquist. Fox News, Carl Rove, and Frank Luntz, to name a few. If we think any of the above are for any of us, we're lost in the fog of a Trump entrance and flagellant statistics of a delusional Stephen Miller stoking the darkness of America's underbelly, and may have missed why and by whom America's greatness was tarnished. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you.